Let's pray this morning, this evening. Father, thank you for a time together, particularly to start it out just worshiping you, exalting your son. I pray, Lord, you hear hearts that are, that are right with you, that are overwhelmed with your son in a, a, a worship set that's, that's so grateful. It's sung in such gratefulness to a Savior who did what we could not do, who truly took away our sins, and not just took them away, but took them upon himself so that they would be taken care of once and for all, and we would made to be perfect in the eyes of the Father. Wow, what a sacrifice. What a substitute. What a perfect atonement for us that did not deserve it. So Lord, we pray that that will never get old to us. In fact, it would just grow in intensity in our lives, in our singing, in our preaching, in the way we live, and the way we interact with one another, Lord. So we pray that we would always be a church that exalts your son. We do thank you for this time together, Lord. It was a week ago this week we asked you, Lord, that you would be gracious and take dear Pastor Roy to be with you. And it seems you've answered that prayer, Lord. And Lord, we know that uh, it seems that just in a few days he will step out of this life, this very temporary life, and he will step into eternity with you. And he will see you. And the Bible says he will be like you. Completely sinless. Free from the concerns of the world. Total victorious in Christ. And so Lord, we pray that this transition from life on this earth to eternal life with you, with you that you would show your kindness to this family. Give them strength. Many are traveling now. Sons are on the road. I know that. Family members are traveling. Friends are coming. We do pray that you would give them journeys, mercies, Lord. And you would gather the church to sing the praises of the one he preached. We ask that you do that for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Take your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 6. We're continuing our study through the Pentateuch together. We're in the book of Exodus, and it's called Exodus because... They exit it. It's uh, a fun book to study. We're learning a lot about ourselves and just the grace of God. Let me start with a quote from Spurgeon that I came across today and really fit in so much. And I think it'll set the tone for us to understand what's happening in both chapter 5 and now chapter 6. As God prepares them for his coming plagues. Spurgeon said this. No dependence can be placed upon our natural qualities or on our spiritual attainments. But God abideth faithful. He is faithful in his love. He knows no variableness, neither shadows of turning. He is faithful to his purpose. He doth not begin a work and then leave it undone. He is faithful to the relationships. As a father, he will not renounce his children As a friend, he will not deny his people. As a creator, he will not forsake the work of his own hand. I really love that statement. It really sets the tone for these two passages, both the passage we looked at last time, Exodus chapter 5 and 6. And God, in these last two chapters, today's and last week's, 
is showing us something before the plagues come. And here's what I think he's doing. He's preparing Moses and the nation to find no hope in anything else but him. It's a difficult, right? The nation's afraid. Moses is going, why'd you do this to me? Um, he's going through all these emotions. There's difficulty. We're going to see that Moses is going to go back to him and they're not even going to believe him. They're not going to listen to him again. And it seems so difficult. And it's such a reminder of where we get in our lives sometimes. We just can't see the way of how things are going to work out. And that's when he shows up. But I want to, I want to teach you this tonight. He's in that He's in that difficult time when you can't see what he's doing. He's God that holds all that together. And he brings us by his grace for our, good, for our goodness, for, for our help and strength to get us to a point where we go, we're done if you don't show up, God. We're done if you don't show up. Have you ever been there? I hope you were there at salvation. <laughs> that, that's where you should be at salvation. But in life, even in ministry and life and marriage and, and raising children and work and finances and all of these things, God often brings us to a point where we are done if he does not show up. We need you. And I think that's what he's doing in these texts as he prepares Moses and Aaron and this nation to find their only hope in God. And let me give you just three thoughts tonight as we'll break this one chapter down into some collective thinking here. Number one, God's gracious reminder of his divine commitment to his children. Now I put that there, this God's gracious reminder to, of his divine commitment to his children because right now, ending in verse, uh, chapter five, verse 22 and forward, is nobody seeing that. But God is gonna be gracious and he's gonna remind them that he has a commitment to his children. Look with me at chapter five, verse 22. The last few verses we closed with last week. Then Moses returned to the Lord. This is after Pharaoh said, get out of here. I don't know your God. Um, the people said, now you've really ruined things. We're odious, we're hateful in the eyes of uh, Pharaoh, he's come back, he's dragging his tail between his legs. Verse 22, he returns to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, why have you brought harm to this people? And then here's the catch one. Why did you ever send me? Verse 23, ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done harm to this people and you have not delivered your people in at all. <laughs> you have not delivered. Pretty bold to speak to God that way. But I think this is his heart. I think he's feeling this and, and, and running, running this through his mind, going, things have not worked out the way I intended them, intended them to. And so Moses is living, I think you could say this, Moses is possibly living by sight, not by faith. That's an easy thing to do, isn't it? It's very easy for us to live by what we can see. And God says, we are not to live by sight. There will be a day, and those who have passed before us or will soon go to be with the Lord that are believers, they will no longer live by faith. They will live by sight. But on this earth, we live by sight, by faith, excuse me, not by sight. And that's the trap that we fall into. And so I think that's what's happening with Moses here. And his frustrations with God are revealed in his speech, aren't they? Why'd you ever send me? You have not delivered this is what comes out of us when we live by sight. 
Notice a little phrase at the end of 23. It says, at all. In the NASB, I'm not sure what the other translations say. So it isn't that you haven't delivered. You haven't delivered anything that you said. What a statement, isn't it? Let me tell you, God doesn't strike him dead. He's very gracious with his children. I have been in this text at times in my life. Early on, called in the ministry, still um, staring at the south end of northbound cattle going, God, when, when are we going to do this calling that you've talked about? And at times, frustrated with God that he hasn't come through with what he said he would do. And he just, he keeps being faithful and we keep submitting to him. But here, Moses sees, says, you haven't done anything. Nothing has turned out the way Moses perceived it should have. And Moses has possibly put his hope in the signs and not in God's word. I think this is what he's going to do with him. That's why he's going to take him back to this commitment to his word. He's put his hope in signs. I, I, you know, these things are not working out, not putting his hope in God's word. I think what is amazing is that though Moses speaks hastily, and expresses disappointment in God, the Lord reacts to him with extreme graciousness. We'll see in the very first verse here. Now look at verse one of chapter six with me. Now, if your children spoke to you this way, mom, why did you ever send me there? You haven't done anything I've asked you to do. The moms are shaking their head. They remember this conversation. Listen, young man, get to your room. Your father's coming home. Those are frightening words for a young man. Um, we wouldn't put up with, look at our gracious God. Then the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For under compulsion he will let them go, and under compulsion he will drive them out of the land. In verse one, God immediately, through his grace, this gracious reminder here, God reassures Moses that he, that he is going to take immediate action. I'm going to deal with this. And I'm going to begin this process of releasing the Israelites. I think that's the first thought of his gracious reminder here. And then we'll see in 2 through 8 here that God will set out his covenant commitment to them. He's going to lay it out one more time before he starts to go to work on Pharaoh. He's going to lay out this covenant that he's talked about all the way back since Genesis 12 with Abraham. He's going to run it out one more time before he acts to remember, listen, when I say I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. But I have a perfect timing. And it may not be yours, but I have a perfect timing. Now, notice again in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. I see this as a, a calm rebuke. <laughs> he, Moses is wound up. Moses does not see things happening right. But our God is so gracious with him. And maybe he's saying something like this. Moses, you are impatient. You are hasty in your complaints. In fact, you're much like the people you will soon shepherd. Why have you brought us out in this desert to die? Were the graves not good enough in Egypt? Right? That's what we're going to hear as we go on with it. We had plenty to eat there and we're out here starving. He's sounding like the nation that he's soon going to be shepherding and leading out there. And so maybe this is this kind rebuke in this first verse that he's doing. Moses, you are impatient, you are hasty in your complaints. But I am gracious. 
I know your limitations, Moses. So without further delay, here is what I'm about to do. This is how I think he's speaking to him here in verse 1. What God is about to do is no longer a declaration of intent. But Moses and the Israelites will be eyewitnesses. Think about this. They're going to be eyewitnesses to the plagues that come directly from the mighty hand of God. This is no longer just a promise, just an intent to do something. We will see next week in chapter 7, he will start to deliver. And boy, you don't want to be on the other hand of the mighty hand of God. This will result in Pharaoh's releasing the people. And notice in verse 1, he says, And what I will do to Pharaoh, for under compulsion he will let them go. He'll release them. He'll set them free. And then look at the next phrase. And under compulsion he will drive them out of the land. This will result in Pharaoh releasing them and driving them out of the land. they, They will become odious to him in the fact that I don't want any more of this God of theirs. I do not want any more of the problems that are come. And they will push them out of the nation. It's God showing who's God. It's the king of kings showing kings who rules them. And that statement is an amazing prophecy of God himself, of what he's going to do to that Pharaoh. And some of us know the story, don't we? We're going to go look at it in depth when we get there. But you will see him bend his knee to God. Not not because he wants to, but he'll be compelled. He'll be compelled to obey God. Now, this is what God had been leading up all along. This has been his promise. This is what he's been doing. And what had been taking place beforehand was preparation for the coming display of this invincible, superior power of the Lord. Everything has been preparation to this point. Getting Pharaoh where he wants him, getting Moses where he wants him, Aaron where he wants him, and the people. So God gave Pharaoh the opportunity. He gave him the opportunity that shows the kindness of God to obey his command. But Pharaoh mocked God's plan and thus showing the hardness of his heart and mind towards the God of Israel. So now, Pharaoh will be forced against his hardened heart to let people go through the display of the power of God's will. His will is no match for God. And this is such a good point to think about. Maybe you're dealing with someone in a difficult position. They're rebellious in some way. And you're trying to care for them. You're trying to minister to them. And Just remember this. Human will has no chance against the will of God. Look at your own will. You thought you could actually will yourself to God. <laughs> and then you start studying, you realize that, no, he, he, actually, he actually willed me to himself. He actually broke through all of my hard-heartedness, my, my faith in my own self, and brought me by his own will, not by mine. John reminds us, it's not by the will of man that we come to him. We come by the will of God. Now, Chapter 3, verse 19, this first verse and all the stuff we just talked about, God told him already at the burning bush, 319, notice it says, but I know the king of Egypt will not permit you to go except under compulsion. It's going to take more than just, hey, Pharaoh, I got a stick that turns into a snake and I got a leper's hand that I can change in and out. It's going to take much more than that. And God's ready to take on this measly king. Look at verse 2 with me. God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. God spoke further to Moses and said, I am the Lord. Now, this is, uh, this is a second part of the insurance, assurance that he's telling Moses here, that he will keep his covenant commitment to them as he promised from the beginning. But God, 
God begins his divine speech here in these, in these verses two through eight, and he bookends this speech. He says, I am Lord. Notice there at the end of verse two, I am Lord. This is a very important statement. We want to figure out why he's using this. And then look at the end of verse eight. This is one section here of, of a dialogue uh, of God to Moses, and he ends that section with, I am Lord. Now, there's some reasons why he does that. It's also found in six and seven, he repeats it in there, but we'll talk about that in a minute. It is because this Lord, this Yahweh, is already known and has already covenanted his promises with those before Moses. He's trying to help them realize, I am not some new God, I have been around, and I've been coveting these promises for a very long time. But the patriarchs, it's interesting that he puts this this way. The patriarchs never saw the Lord the way Moses is going to get to see him. And and I think this is an important thought. Look at verse 3 with me. I have appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Now this is a fascinating passage. People are right tons and tons of stuff on this verse, but let me see if I can simplify this for you. Um, In the book of Exodus, we are entering a new and greater history of redemption. We're we're coming into a new part of the Bible, um, a larger view of, of redemptive history, what God is doing. The patriarch period has passed away. The Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, those descendants, those patriarchs are now gone, but the but the descendants of these patriarchs, they are now people in slavery in a foreign land. The, the, other, the patriarchs never saw that slavery. So like the patriarchs before them, they knew of a distinction of Elohim. Uh, they would call him Elohim, and they would recognize him as creator. Like the patriarchs before, they would know him as El Shaddai, as a mighty God. And for known for his promises and his redemptive Uh, power that he had and yet now think about this look at this verse verse three they had not known the full significance of his authority and power as Yahweh because he's going to do something new this time he's bringing frogs out of the woodwork he's turning water into blood he's bringing gnats and flies and he's bringing death They're going to see Yahweh work in a way the patriarchs have never yet seen. And so that's why that's written that way. It doesn't mean that God wasn't very, very real to to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But as redemptive history progresses, and that's what's so amazing, there's a progression of the revelation of God more and more as you study the Bible. If you start in Genesis and work your way all the way to Revelation, you should grow absolutely um, a, a larger and larger view of God as you study And that's what's happening here. Does that make sense with verse three? There's a lot of stuff written on verse three out there. um, And some of it's not very good. Uh, But that's what I believe is going on. You're gonna see me in a way they didn't get to. And you're gonna fear me. You're gonna be awe of what I am gonna do. And so the book of Exodus will put on full display the sovereign power and authority of Yahweh. I can't wait to get into the next couple chapters because you start getting in these plagues and they just start rolling in. And he goes, okay, maybe I'll let you go. Hardens his heart, no. And the next play comes and just, he keeps showing his power one after another. And he's taken on every one of the Egyptian gods. He's taken on Pharaoh himself. He's taken on life and death to prove, I am the Lord. And you nation of Israel, you've never seen anything like this. 
It's amazing. Now look at verse four with me. I will also establish my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan in the land in which they sojourn. Now this, this is a summary of the promises of God made many, many different occasions. God is not establishing a new covenant here. He's affirming one he set forth to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Without turning there, Genesis chapter 12, verse 7, as Abraham is introduced onto the scene, he is asked to leave his family and go to a land that is on his own. As you follow that down, remember it tells us that there is a seed that will be in him that will be a blessing to all nations. It's the gospel. Paul said in Galatians that God was preaching the gospel to Abraham because that seed was the one that was going to save uh, mankind, those who would put their faith in him. But verse 7 in chapter 12 says this, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, your descendants, I will give this land. He's got them, remember, he's got them in the land. He goes, look around. Your descendants, I will give this land. So he built an altar there in the Lord who had appeared to him, and he's in Canaan. So this is the fulfillment of that. That's what verse four is about. So this is one of the strongest points of the covenant, that God would make them no longer aliens or strangers or foreigners in the land. See, the patriarch were always foreigners in the land. I mean, we would see Jacob get get mad at his sons because they did something stupid. Remember, uh, he went in and circumcised all the men, and he, he goes, you're gonna get us all killed here. This isn't our land. So, so he's saying, look, this is what's gonna happen. In verse four, he's gonna say, you're no longer gonna be strangers in the land because it's gonna be your land. Thank you. That's what verse four is about. And this is the fulfillment of this, co- this covenant. Now, just think about this just for ours, our sake and for loved ones. Um, we have been promised heaven, haven't we? By the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, he sat down at the right hand of the Father, waiting to make his enemies a footstool, but he is the gatekeeper to heaven, isn't he? It is through him and him alone that we come, through his righteousness, and we come into a land that he has promised us. And all those who have passed away before us or, or may soon go, or Pastor Roy here shortly may go, they step into a land, into a, a heaven, into an eternity that Christ has been preparing for us for years. And it no longer is a promise at death. It's a fulfillment. Isn't that amazing? And I'm jealous. Because I can't wait to get the soles of my feet before the king of the land. Does that make sense? I can't wait to get the soles of my feet in front of the king of the land and worship him and be with him. If this precious promise to the patriarchs before the enslavement of of Egypt was, was amazing to them that they would have this land, how much more precious to those enslaved being beat daily, doing the work for another nation, would that kind of promise be? I think it would be amazing to them. I think they're going, I don't know if I can get my mind around that. My, my back's bleeding. I have to go get straw. Things are just a mess. Our babies are being killed. Don't forget that's happening. Boy babies are being killed. Wow. We're going to have a land. Look at verse 5. We've got to keep moving. Furthermore, I have heard the groanings, groaning of the sons of Israel because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage. And I have remembered my covenant, just quickly in this verse, is for sake of time, I have heard the groaning, I have seen the enslavement, and I have remembered my covenant. Remember, Moses is coming 
every dream shattered now. I've lost faith in this whole thing. I'm not sure you shouldn't even have sent me. He's reminding him of this tremendous covenant here. Now look at verse six with me. Say therefore to the sons of Israel. He's not asking Moses any more of his opinion. He's not showing him anything. He's just now saying this is the way it's going to be, Moses. Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of Egypt, of the, of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage. And I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgment. Now this verse shows that the covenant promise given to Moses was already solemnly promised to the patriarchs. So verse six tells us that Moses again is charged to tell the people this. He's not telling Moses this. He's saying, you tell the people this. Therefore, go and tell these sons of Israel, I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. And this would, this would make it clear that the message was not Moses. He says, look, you've gone and maybe tried to do this on your own strength, try to say, hey, you know, I'm here to tell you this. You tell them I said this. You tell them I said this. You are my spokesman. So the Lord himself is gonna fulfill this covenant promise. Notice he says this out of this little phrase here, out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I was goofing around in the Hebrew looking at this and this word burdens translated several different ways. You may have a different translation. It might say yoke in your translation. Um, there's a few other words that it'll get translated. And it's used different throughout the Old Testament in different ways. But one of the phrases is yoke. And um, I, I don't know how many have ever put a team together or, you know, you're in, uh, and there's a yoke that will go upon them. And horses, it slips over and it's a collar and then it hooks to the double tree and kind of hooks them into a, to a team. And then on the other side of the double tree, there's another horse there and they're hooked in. But for oxen, they actually put a big yoke, a heavy yoke on them that would hold them down, not let them get high-headed. And, and they'd be tied down to that double tree and then, the, then all their lines would run behind them and they'd be able to pull whatever they needed to pull. And it was heavy. And so this word is a very, um, very uh, illustrative word, uh, particularly in this time. They were using oxen to carry bricks and, and uh, build, you know, whatever a pharaoh wanted being built here. And, and there's a reaction to having something heavy on you. And I think what God's word is trying to give them a word picture of what it's going to be like. Uh, many times I would come in from riding. You work horses really hard. There's times I apologize to my horses. Man, I'm sorry, I worked you too hard today. We got a lot of work to do. And, you know, but you pull your saddle off them. And when you pull that off and pull their bits off of them and, and, and they're free, they just go crazy. A lot of times they just go running off, bucking off if they're not too tired. And, and you know, they're all sweaty and you try to rub them down, but they just want to get away from you and they just want to be free. And that's the idea here. I think this is what he's saying. I will bring you out from under that burden, that yoke, that constant pressure that is on you, and I will deliver you from that bondage. I will pull that off of you, and you will feel free like you've never felt before. Remember, there is no one here in, in um, this message here that has seen freedom. They're 400 years. So it's generation of slaves after generations of slaves after generations of slaves. None of them have seen freedom. So this language is foreign to them. It's foreign. And they're going, all of this burden will be pulled off you. And God is being so kind and so illustrative as he begins to tell them what I'm going to do. And then he uses this word, I, also, I will also redeem you with an outstretched hand. Redeem and rescue are, are very similar words. They're very like-minded in this reference. It carries the idea of a more of a kinsman redeemer here. 
And it's linked to the, to the bond that the Lord already has to Israel as his firstborn. Just a couple chapters ago in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, he says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, he's telling Moses what to say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn. So there's a redeem, a kinsman redeemer type of uh, language that's in this verse here. And so the king, a kinsman redeemer acted on the behalf of a family member who had fallen under hard times. And often they would even buy back one, a family member, who has fallen into slavery. Can you see that now? God says, that's my son. They've been in slavery for 400 years. I'm coming and I'm buying them back. Now we see this illustrated where? Book of Ruth? Did someone say the book of Ruth? Where else? Hosea? Had to marry a lovely woman named Gomer. Um, I'm sure that was a great name back then. Um, uh, we see this, this, this purchase of someone to, to purchase their freedom. This is beautiful language. And I think for us in the you know, 21st century, um, we, we don't quite understand what he's saying here. And I'm not sure they did. In fact, you can see in the text, they have lost hope that this would ever happen. Now, the Lord will redeem Israel with his outstretched arm and with great judgment, the Bible says. He has the strength to do this. It reminded me of a couple texts of the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. Because I want you to see some of this. Because this is all pointing forward, right? This is all looking to a greater release. Uh, something even more important than physical freedom. It's looking forward to something else, isn't it? So 1 Peter chapter 1, look with me there in verse 18. Peter writes this, inspired by God, knowing that you were not redeemed. There's that purchase, that kinsman redeemer, with precious things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers. Can't buy your way to heaven. It's not gonna work. But your redemption, it refers back to that main verb in 18, but your redemption, but with the precious blood of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. That was the purchase price. Had to be free from sin, it could not have the stain of, of uh, the depravity of man in it in any way. It would, not been re- it would not have been received. It would have been rejected. And so he had to be fully God, fully man. And he had to bleed out for you and I. Verse 20. For he, that's Christ, was foreknown before the foundations of the world. This is the plan of God. The triune God planned this. But has appeared in these last days, last times, for the sake of you. Who through him, now listen to this, through him are believers in God. Maybe you not have been in your Bible long and you, you, I think naturally when we come to God, we think, well, I'll just believe in God. I'll, I'll, I'll believe in God. I'll believe in Jesus. I'll do those things. But the Bible reminds us that it's, it's him who does this, who through him we are believers in God. It's God that awakens you to God. This is how he redeems people. And, and I think that's so illustrated. Think about this in Exodus chapter 6. They've given up on God. (laughs) They're not awake to what God is doing, but God says, look, Moses, I'm gonna come in and awaken them. I'm gonna redeem them. They they don't think it's gonna happen. They don't have any hope in you. They don't have any hope in Pharaoh. They don't have any hope in anything, but I'm gonna come in and I'm gonna teach them to believe in me. And it's exactly what he does to you and I. 
And man, do I praise God for that. Because left to myself, I would never believe in him. And you wouldn't either. You would go about your merry way, thinking that you're good and moral and somehow you're gonna get to some place sometime. But God awakens us to teach us to believe in God who raised him from the dead. That's a mighty strong, right? Remember we're talking about by his outstretched arm, he's gonna bring a people out. Look at the power of God. He can awaken his son from the dead and he gave him glory. He sh- and he gave him back his glory. We can see that in John chapter 17. So that your faith and hope are in God. That's exactly what he's gonna do in Israel. A couple more verses. Galatians chapter three, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. When you're cursed, you're cursed. Someone has to remove that curse. One more, you're, you're still in the New Testament. Just stop on your way back on Colossians. You know, like you stop on the way home for a, some milk. Stop in Colossians on the way back to Exodus here real quick. Because I gotta show you this passage. Because I kept thinking about verses where it shows the power of God to redeem, the power of God to pull someone out of a lost, enslaved situation. Look with me at Colossians chapter two, verse 13 through 15. Boy, does this fit the bill when you think about the power of an outstretched hand of God. Look at the first phrase. When you were dead in your transgressions. (laughs) I mean, dead's dead, isn't it? You gonna give yourself CPR? You gonna call 911? (laughs) You're dead. This This is a hopeless situation. It's gonna take the power of God to to do something to raise you from the dead, isn't it? When you were dead in your transgressions and uncircumcised, that means you were just filthy in your flesh. He made you alive together with him. Man, that's power. That's power. Man wants this power. They want the ability to give life. They can't figure out how it even starts. They like to take life in the womb, elderly, any way they can get away with it, but they can't figure out how to give life because only God has it. And Jesus says, the Father gives life and I also give life. Look at this, this is an outstretched arm of God. This is how powerful he is. And he made you alive together with him. Look at this, here's how he does it. Having forgiven us, how much of our sins? Thank you, all of them. Isn't that beautiful? Look at all he does by his strong, outstretched hand. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against you. Is that an ugly phrase or what? Well, let's pull out and see how Scott did since birth. <laughs> Whoa. Yep, death. Put your name in there. Don't, you know, I, I like to throw it in because I'm easy target up here. Put your name in there. Any thought Action, deed, contrary to God, you are condemned. And you may think you're pretty good because there's always one that says, I'm righteous. But the Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one, because there's always that person. But then it takes us to the point we were conceived in sin. We were sinners from the womb. See, when you talk about an outstretched power, a hand of, the powerful hand of God, we just can't think about, oh, this is a great story about Israel. Boy, God, you sure did a good job getting those guys out of that bad situation. This is pushing forward to something, and it's actually pushing forward to us. Look at the rest of this real quick. Which, this, this decree against us, which, which was hostile to us. You want to talk about hostile? It's your, death, it's your death sentence. That's pretty hostile, right? And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. 
You go, oh man, this is amazing. Well, keep going, 15. And when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities that Satan and his followers, he took death out of his hand. Hebrews chapter two, verse 14 and 15. He took death away from him so he couldn't kill you. Who can do that? He took it out of the way, nailing it to cross. He disarmed these rulers and authorities and he made a public display of them. I beat you. And having triumphed over them, through him, what power Christ has to bring us out of slavery. As you make your way back, get to verse seven in chapter six, and we gotta step on it just a little bit here. Verse seven tells us that then back in this scene, Moses is not having a debate with God. God's just a purely dialogue here. He's reminding uh, Moses, and he's not added to this. He's not, he's not changing anything. This is his covenant that he's laid down, but it's, but it's a reminder of what he's supposed to say. Then I will, take you, I will take you for my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. See, this verse shows, uh, again, two sides of God's covenant promise. First, when God would free the nation of Israel, they would not uh, be left to their own. He, he says, uh, uh, when, when I've taken you out, I will be your God. Remember, all you've known is a king. You've been in slavery. You've had masters over you. You've had all that. What, 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 well, what happens when we get free? He says, look, don't worry about it. I'm gonna be your God. Notice that in verse seven there. I will be your God, and you will know that I am the Lord. And so this is the, the first side of it. The second side of, the, of God's promise is would, he would be there, he would give them a personal knowledge. He would give Israel personal knowledge and, and understand his redemptive actions. You will know what I've done, and you will not understand that I brought you out from under the burdens. You'll connect my work with what you've done. That's what happens at salvation. When we get saved, we go, I know, I know I'm a sinner. And, and we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and God grants us faith and then we repent and, and, and we begin to walk with the Lord. And then we begin to study the Bible and we begin to realize, oh, wait a minute, Lord. You've known me from the foundations of the world. Wait a minute, Lord. That wasn't me on my own strength asking you to come into my heart. That was you doing it. Lord, you brought me out of sin. You brought me out of slavery. See, see that what happens as you grow? That's what called disciple is. That's we disciple people who come to faith. We want them to know what God has done. We want them to be worshipers. You walk around and say, well, I, I got myself out of sin. I've done all that. You won't worship God. Who are you gonna worship? You worship yourself, isn't it? Now look at verse eight. I will bring you to a land which I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I'll give it to you for a possession. And then he ends this dialogue here in verse eight. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. So the land has always played a key role in the benefits of God's covenant with Israel. And I think it plays a key role with us. We, you know, we, the Bible says he's gonna make us a new heavens and earth. We're gonna have a kingdom that will not pass away and Christ will rule on it. We'll rule and reign with him. But here, the possession of the promised land would be the fulfillment of God's promise to the patriarchs. The patriarchs never got to see what they're gonna see. Now, remember, they're not all gonna go in. We're gonna see a problem, Right? Some of them are not going to believe Caleb and Joshua. And he's going to say, oh, right, yeah, you're all going to die in the wilderness because you did not believe my word. And 20 under will wander around for 40 years and then they'll come in. But, but this is an interesting promise because it connects something that the patriarchs get and see. This is the fulfillment. You're going to see land. You're going to have this. 
And so their enjoyment of the land would be a gift from God. And it's really fun. Some of the books like Joshua are ones we don't see a lot of sin in the nation. It's before they start doing, being stupid. Um, I used to get a, we have to tell our kids a quarter for that. I shouldn't say that, huh? <laughs> they're acting sinful, right? Um, and so Joshua's great because they're walking with God so, so well and they're obeying him and they're just knocking off Canaanites and Hittites and Amorites and every other tite out there um, one after another because they're walking with God and, and it's a gift from God. And he says, look, I'm gonna give you this land. It's gonna show that I wasn't lying, that I am a God of my word and you're gonna have what I said. And, I, and, I, and again, one more thought here. I know when I die, I'm gonna step into heaven. Why? Because God said I would. I have gone to prepare a place for you. And he's doing that now. Isn't that a blessed truth? Verse nine. So Moses spoke thus to the sons of Israel. Hmm. Well, there seems to be no objection from Moses at this point. If you just look at the very beginning of nine here. Um, And he goes and he reports this to the Israelites. Maybe he's encouraged again. Okay, God, man, that was a great speech. <laughs> I'm ready to go. And he, and he goes back to these Israelites and, and, and he's ready to tell them all that he does. And verse nine reports that he did this. Moses spoke thus to the sons of Israel. He, he went back and said, here's what God himself has said. I've met with him. And oh no, what happens? The nation did not react the same way Moses did. Look at the rest of nine. But they did not listen to Moses on account of their despondency and cruel bondage. The circumstances were too great, weren't they? Their faith had been affected by their misery, right? Their bondage was so extreme that they, they couldn't take heart the message that was given by Moses, brought to them from God. They were so despondent, the Bible says. Their faith was unable to function at this point, they were, they, were, they were not able to connect what God was doing in the promise of his covenants here. And, and I think in like in Israel, we fail to believe God's word when our circumstances overwhelm us, but that's when we need to believe the most. And, and I feel for them. As I read this, I said, Lord, man, I'd like to say that I would believe God's word in this moment, but there's times in my own life where I could not see what he was doing and I struggled. We've all been there, haven't we? Does that change what our God is going to do? See, that's why he's the faithful one. That's why he's the gracious one. That's why we're in such need of him because you and I do this sometimes, right? I believe in you. I I believe in you. I struggle, right? And he's just, that's why we hang on to him. I love what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians. Just listen to this 1, 8 through 10. He says, for we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our afflictions which came onto us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively, think about this, beyond our strength, he says, so that we despaired even of life. That's the great Apostle Paul. 13 epistles, countless churches, trained men all over the globe. He says, look, we were to the point where we despaired even for life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust, here we go, in ourselves. And that's what God's doing. He's doing that with the nation. He's doing it with them. Second thought. Wow. We've got a few minutes here. Uh, following, our gracious, uh, following our gracious Redeemer when no one else will. Following our gracious Redeemer when no one else will. Look at um, these next set of verses here. And, and, and I, 
let me just give you a disclaimer. What I'm trying to do is, I think God's working on Moses even when the nation says, look, um, that's a really good speech, but we're not buying it. We're not buying it. And, and I, I think that's what he's doing. Will you follow a gracious redeemer when no one else will? And I think often we see the servants of the Lord put in this situation. Just real quick, think about um, Elijah and uh, Jezebel's trying to kill him, remember? And he, you know, he's up on Mount Carmel. God sends fire down, licks everything up. They kill all, their, all these prophets of Baal and, and everything's looking good. And then Jezebel wants to kill him and he runs away, right? And he hides and, and he's scared. And, 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 and God says, what are you doing? He says, look, this woman's after me. I'm scared. I, I, don't, I don't know how to do. Uh, there's nobody left but me. And God says, look, there's 700 that won't bend the knee to Baal or kiss his lips in verse 18 of 1 Kings chapter 19. And so it's a reminder, there's times we do that. I think Moses, God's preparing Moses. Look, I know it looks like nobody's gonna follow you. It looks like they've rejected you again. But look, I have this all figured out. It's all planned. It's gonna happen as I said. At times we can find ourselves in this same situation. Now, notice back in our text. This brief section tells us that Moses, being divinely led, um, continues his, is, is to continue his mission. So he's trying to, look, I know they don't believe in you, but I want you to continue the mission. Look at verse 10 and 11. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, go tell Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to let the sons of Israel go out of this land. So we see the Lord is undeterred by the fear of, the fear of Israelites, the, the shaken faith of Abraham, and the stern, get out of my face, Pharaoh. He's unshaken by this. He's undeterred by these things. And so he knows what he's going to do. He knows he's going to accomplish it. So the Lord charges Moses, return back to the divine mission. And I love this. Uh, those of us that are in the ministry, we need to be reminded of these things. Sometimes it's very difficult to what we do. Um, it's hard to lead the flock at times. It's hard to balance life and all the things we go. God often says, hey, get up and return to the mission. <laughs> and, and this is what he's doing with Moses. That, well, nobody else is going. I don't care. Get up, return to the mission. And so he charges him, go tell Pharaoh the king. Pharaoh didn't want to see him. He says, you go tell him. Now, look at verse 12. But Moses spoke before the Lord saying, behold, the sons of Israel have not listened to me. How then will Pharaoh listen to me? For I am unskilled in speech. Now, here comes the human reasoning back again. If the people won't listen to me, how can I expect Pharaoh to? And then he comes back to this old fallback excuse, right? I'm unskilled in speech. Right? He's right back to that again. And though it seems to be that Moses considered himself incapable of acting as God's servant because he was unable to persuade people to believe, God says, look, you're going to go do this. I have a mission for you. Get back in the fight. Go see Pharaoh. Look at verse 13 with me. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them charge to the sons of Israel, um, gave them a charge to the sons of Israel and to Pharaoh the king to bring the sons out of the land of Egypt. So 13, this time there was no extended discussion. Um, there's, there's no, God isn't saying, well, let's talk about this a little more. Go do this. God gave him no further provision, no additional help. God gave him no further signs or wonders to perform, no new snake trick or anything like that. The Lord simply commanded him, go ahead with the task I commanded you to do and I will fulfill it. Go tell him exactly. Don't mess around let my people go. Now, notice that God didn't leave Moses alone speaking here humanly. 
um, what he said here is, take Aaron with you. And I like this, and just, there's so much here, and I might have to come back to this in the weeks to come a little bit and finish this, but isn't God gracious? Have you ever had to do a very difficult confrontation with somebody? Maybe somebody close to you. As pastors, sometimes we have to confront sin and, and try to help bring people back to restoration to the church and stuff, and it's very hard. It's very scary, especially when they're mad at you, and you didn't do anything. You're just trying to help them. We, you know, as pastors, we, we lose sleep over this stuff sometimes because we know this person's not going to be happy. But you know what? When you have someone who loves the Lord and loves you and loves the flock go with you, it's so much easier. We've done this together. Some of our pastors have had to do this. It's not easy. But when you go with somebody, and, and I think God is so gracious here, because you see in verse 13, he spoke to him and to Aaron. You guys go tell this together. And I, I, and I appreciate this from a ministry standpoint of view. Find somebody to go with when you have difficult things to do. The confrontation can be difficult alone, but God provides people to go with you. Um, and remember, Jesus did not send them out one by one. He sent them out by twos, didn't he? When, when he sent the disciples out, he said, just don't go out there and deal with the Pharisees and all the, you know, Satan's just running wild in that time and, and the, de- the demon possession's great at that time, all concentrated around that area of the world trying to stop Christ from getting the cross. He did not send them out by themselves. And, and when you see Paul, he's always sending guys out. And, and he'll say, all of these men and women are coming to see you. And so there's strength in those numbers, and I, I appreciate that. Now, just real quick here to finish this out. I can't get into this too heavily tonight because we've got to finish, but the third thought is God's graciousness from generation to generation. Verse 14 through the end of the chapter is like an addendum that's dropped into the narrative. There's a brief interruption in the narrative, um, and it's an important reminder here. It's, it, it is a link to the the nature of the covenant promises which did not come just to individuals but it came to the individuals and their offspring so what what here's going what's quickly what's going on here moses remember is writing exodus when when it's happening no he's writing it as they're waiting most likely to go into the promised land so this is a history lesson for the kids 20 and under most likely that are waiting to go in the promised land. This is being written on the Sinar plain. Moses is writing out the Pentateuch um, to encourage the nation to believe God. So what he does here, and, and boy, this is fun. In seminary, you kind of tackle this stuff a little bit. He gives the lineage, particularly here of the Levite tribe. So what God is saying is, look, I'm not just doing this for Moses. In fact, he brings Aaron into the picture. He says, Aaron's actually the older Levite son. Moses is his younger brother. But what's going to come after him is all these other men who will be intercessors, priests for me. So when God does this, what he's doing, he's reminding Moses and he's reminding the nation here that uh, my covenant promise isn't just to an individual but to individuals and their offspring. So this is what God was doing down through this history. And so you see Phineas in there and other sons of, 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 the, of the, some of the priests and you'll, you can walk down to those names and you can see people that you recognize, Korah's in there and others, these men who served as intercessories for God. Now, drop down to verse 26 and we'll close with this. It was the same 
Aaron and Moses, to whom the Lord said, bring out the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt according to their host. Now notice that's in past tense because I want you to understand he's dropping this into the narrative to teach the nation that the same people that this is being written about, Aaron and Moses, they were actually there and we have their descendants with us now. And it is descendants of Aaron and Moses that are going into the land. So I love this thought. It's, it's not just to an individual it's to an individual and their descendants. It's a promise. So Abraham and Isaac never got to see this. Guess who else is not gonna get to see it? Moses. He's not gonna see this. But the sons of Moses will see it. Joshua and others who will go. So Moses is securing in the minds of the people in real time on the, signs of, in the, on the Sinar plain waiting to enter the promised land that God has chosen Aaron and Moses and their descendants that's what he's doing to be intercessors. Remember, uh, Korah and his group are gonna challenge him on that, and what happens to them? Ground opens up and swallows them. So he's, he's reminding that this is, God's, this is how God has done it. He tr- took the tribe of Levi, and from that came the priesthood, and they were gonna intercede till the final great priest comes. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is the greater priest He's the greater priest in every way. He's the priest that sat down after he made uh, uh, purifications for sin. He's the the priest that sat down at the right hand of God to make his enemies his footstool because there was nothing else to do for by one offering he perfected for all time all those who that would be sanctified. So so this this little section, and sometimes we just skip over this when we're doing our Bible reading because we can't pronounce the names, but it's an important section because this is the lineage of the priesthood and this will stop with Christ. He will be the final priest, the final intercessor. You will never need anybody else to intercede for you. And actually, think about this just a step further. We can become part of that priesthood, don't we? Now we have the right to walk into the presence, the holy of holies, walk into the presence of God and speak with him at any time. We can sing praises to him, bring offerings of praises to him at any time because of that final priest. So I know that's, we jumped over that section, you could read it on your own and work on your Hebrew pronunciations, um, but that's what that is set in there to do. So praise the Lord for those things. All right, I gotta quit, I'm a little late. Um, that's kind of fun stuff, isn't it? That's a great chapter. Now we're gonna get into the plagues. All the promises are coming. In chapter seven and eight, he's gonna start dumping stuff on this nation. And, and Israel's gonna get hit too, a little bit. He goes, they get hit by these plagues as well, and then all of a sudden, he starts to protect them within the land of Goshen. We're gonna see where he separates light and darkness between where they live. And it's, it's amazing, but the God who created light can do that. All right, we're gonna have fun in this. Father, thank you for this time together in the word. We thank you for um, just how beautiful this section is and how relevant it is to us to this day, Lord. We, like Moses and the nation, often focus on things and frustrated with things that we can't see. And you remind us to trust your word. And you rehearse the word to us over and over. You let us hear preaching. You let us read your Bible. Your spirit of God reminds us of these truths, spotlights these truths. And yet at times we are stubborn and we just can't see, Lord. So I pray you would help us, remind us tonight that you are God who does things despite us, Lord. We thank you that you bring us out of slavery, that if it wasn't for you, we would still be enslaved to sin. Satan would still be our father, our master. We would still be bond slaves to him, Lord. But you have released us. You pulled the yoke of slavery off. 
You caused us to believe in you and we're now free now to walk with you and serve you and be bondservants for our Lord Jesus Christ now willingly. And so Lord, we thank you for the reminders that are in this. We thank you that finally, Lord, you had a priesthood in the Old Testament. They were to intercede for, for man to God. That was their job. But then a final priest came. One perfect who did not need to offer sacrifices for his own self. He did not eat multiple sacrifices. He offered one and it was him. And so he was both the offerer and the offering. (laughs) And it was finished. And he sat down. And so our faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, the final priest. And we thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for the reminder of this. May it cause us to live for you as we go to work tomorrow, as we interact with other people, Lord. Cause us to love your son because he set us free. In Jesus' name, amen.